We're going to be beginning a study of Galatians and James, and uh, we're going to uh, compare and contrast the two. We're especially going to do that as we get into chapter 3 of Galatians. The first two chapters of Galatians we're going to study alone, then we will get into an actual comparison of the two. What I thought I would do, and that's what I did on the board, and those of you online, um, there isn't anything really substantive on the board, but I'm just doing a little bit of a comparison. Uh, James and Paul uh, are write the two first letters of the New Testament. The, the Epistle of James was written probably about AD 45, maybe AD 46. It is the first epistle. It is actually the first uh, book of the New Testament. The book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written about AD 47 or 48, so they're very close. Paul's uh, epistle, the book of Galatians, was written about A.D. 49 in the fall of A.D. 49. And I'll say a little more about that in a minute. Who are these two individuals? I think you know them, but I thought I'd just review them real quickly because uh, they're both very remarkable men. In their lifetime, they both rejected Jesus when he was on earth. As a matter of fact, James, who was the brother of Jesus, believed that Jesus was insane. There's a, there are two verses, uh, same account, but one in Mark and one in Matthew, where Jesus uh, comes to hometown and the family's staying outside uh, and they think he's actually going crazy. And they, they allude to that. They can hardly believe the things that their brother is saying and doing. As you know, Paul rejected Jesus uh, during Jesus' public ministry. Uh, although Jesus, excuse me, although Paul was a Pharisee, the inferences he probably said on the Sanhedrin can't prove that, but that seems reasonable. But he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He regarded the church as heretical. He regarded the church as dangerous. And as you know, he sought to persecute the church. Uh, there's considerable evidence he ordered the killing of many Christians. He threw many Christians into, into prison. As you know, he received... Um, warrants for the arrest of the leaders of the church at Damascus. He got those from the high priest. And as he was moving uh, toward Damascus, uh, Jerusalem up to Damascus, a fairly good trip, along the Damascus Road, of course, you know the story, it's recorded in Acts 9, he meets Christ. Jesus uh, appears to him, and it's, it's transforming. We do not know the exact date nor time of James's conversion. We do know one thing, it was after resurrection. James does not put his faith and trust in his brother Jesus until after the resurrection. It's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul itemizes all the different people that, that came to faith and witnessed the resurrection. And uh, James, so that's interesting because we do not know the circumstances of, of that. We don't know what, when it occurred exactly, as have an approximate date. But as would happen to so many people in the first century, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the transforming event that caused people to put their faith in him. And I, that's obviously obviously very compelling. If you know the person or you see the person or you know about the person, you know he was executed, and in three days he's running, he's back to life, and he makes 10 post-resurrection appearances to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, many people are going to come to faith. And we know that the resurrection of Jesus is what caused the early church. They were willing to die for this hundreds and hundreds of martyrs in the first century because they believed in the resurrection. 
James then emerges as head of the Jerusalem church. Um, we, we don't know an awful lot about James uh, in terms of details of his background, but he also was well-trained and well-educated, and he becomes uh, the key leader of the Jerusalem church, and he will sign the Jerusalem uh, decree uh, that's a result of the Jerusalem council that's recorded for us in Acts 18. Very, very important document. As you know, Paul meets Christ on Damascus Road. The, the date of that is, we're pretty certain, it's either late A.D. 35 or very early A.D. 36. And as you know, and we're going to read about this in the first two chapters, after Paul meets Christ on the Damascus Road, he uh, spends some time in the, the desert south of, of Damascus and what is today around the area of Petra, uh, and then uh, is taken basically to Jerusalem, but then he, he flees again. He goes up to Tarsus, and he goes out of sight. We don't know anything about him. For almost 13 years, we know nothing of what Paul's doing. He will mention this, and we're going to get to that. I don't know if we'll get that far into the, the text today. But he will mention he's up in the province of Syria, Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is. Tarsus was his home, his hometown. And so he's up there. He's ministering. He's serving. He's preaching. He's teaching. But we don't know a lot about that. As a matter of fact, we know nothing about that. And it's not until you get to Acts 13 that Barnabas goes up and get him, gets him, and he becomes the leader in the Antiochian church, church at Antioch, and then is sent the first missionary journey. And that is AD 48. So it's really, so I often would use this with young men in the various groups I had. Allow the Lord to develop you and grow you before you get into detailed, passionate, full-time ministry, because it took Paul 13 years. From the time he met Christ until the first missionary journey, it was 13 years. And that's a long time. And I think part of that is, is what we see reflected in the book of Galatians and later in the book of Romans, because there you see, in these two books, you see the mature theology of Paul, where he's able to take everything he learned under Gamaliel I, about him later on in this book. Emilio I was the greatest rabbi of the first century. Paul studied under him. And he, he would have known the law. He probably had vast portions of the law memorized. He understood the law. But you know what he was able to do? Is take the moral law of God and combine it with Christianity and give us a of what Christ did in fulfilling the law bringing it to its completion, and then instituting the new covenant. And so Paul will talk a lot about that. He will reflect on that. So it really starts with the book of Galatians. And in the, uh, the notes that you, know, you, you, you got, if you have those or you're interested, if not, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. I have a summary of the argument of the book of, of Galatians. We're not going to read that. That's just for your benefit. But I thought I would read the introductory paragraph because it helps us to understand why did Paul write this letter? This is his first letter. I already mentioned James's letter is written about AD 45, AD 44, but probably 45. Paul's is not written until the fall of 89. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches shortly after he returned to Antioch at the end of his first missionary. Remember, Antioch it's up in the Orontes River in what today would be modern-day Syria. By the way, Antioch, that city, that, that area was absolutely devastated by that recent earthquake. Massive loss 
in Antioch. A lot of archaeological sites, a lot of very important things, utterly destroyed and devastated by the earthquake. That was one of the tragedies, that earthquake. Because Antioch was one of the most important cities. It was a great Roman city, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. And it's just been decimated by that earthquake. That's a real tragedy. But anyway, this is the Antioch way up. There were a lot of Antiochs at that time, but this is way up there. That was Paul's sending church. They sent him and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. So when he comes back, he reports to that church. And that uh, that was a typical thing. The year is AD 49, more than likely very late summer, early, very early fall. But it is extremely important if you are interested in these things, I am, that Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council of AD uh, 49. That, that council, which I will mention as we get into the book, but we know it was written before that because he doesn't mention it. Paul had planted the churches in the southern region of Galatia. Some of the towns are mentioned in Acts 13. Um, Jim, can you give us a, the number of years that this book again was written? I think it's always good to kind of reference that after um, Christ um, had uh, been crucified. And, and when, okay, um, well, if, if it was written in AD 49, Jesus was crucified on April the 3rd, AD 33. So let so me do the math. It's 16 years. 16 years so um, he returned home to the church in Antioch and got word to the group of false teachers. In our discussion in the weeks to come, I'm going to call these false teachers. I'm going to use the label Judaizers. That is not a biblical word. But that is a word that, and it's in your notes there, but that is a word that most expositors use because what, what that means, Judaizers, they are sending this message. We like what Paul says about faith. But you have to keep the law. You have to you have to be circumcised. You you have to keep the moral law of God. You have to keep you, you have to maintain the feast days. You have to keep the Sabbath. So also you see what they're doing, and, and just follow me here to make sure you get this, because if you don't, you're going to misunderstand everything Paul's writing. What the Judaizers are doing is saying Christ isn't enough. You also need to keep the law. And in it becomes really, really important because they are going to follow Paul all around his missionary journey. Because they, these are Jewish leaders, but these are Jewish leaders who are terribly upset at what Paul is doing. And part of it is, and I'm sure you would realize this, part of it is these guys are being told that we have to turn our back on 1,500 years of our tradition. We have, to, we have to negate that. We have to set that aside. And Paul, what Paul says, and this is the whole theme of the New Testament, you're not setting it aside. You're embracing the Son of God who fulfilled the law. Its purpose is over. Paul's going to make that argument in Galatians 3. It's so important to see it that way. The law isn't being set aside. The law has been fulfilled. Its purpose and its function in God's economy of things has been completed. We no longer are under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. We're under the new covenant. And that's Paul's message. He just keeps saying it over and over again. So that's going to be one of the themes. So when Paul hears that these, oh, again, I'm going to use the label Judaizers. When these Judaizers are up in those same cities where he had planted a whole bunch of churches, he comes unglued. And he sits down and writes this letter. And he fires off this letter 
to these Galatian churches, Galatian churches. So we call it the Epistle of Paul to the Galatians. And that's the, the Roman province of Galatia had two parts. It's the southern part of, of Galatia. And those cities that you see in Acts 13, city of Antioch, Lystra, if you go to Acts 13, you see all those cities. And so they, they're trying to keep certain part of the law. Paul says, no. As a matter of fact, you're going to see this very early in the gospel, uh, or I mean of the epistle. Paul is going to use a very important word. These guys are preaching a different gospel. And I'll, I'll talk about the importance of that word different when we get to it. So that kind of, um, that kind of sets the stage. Uh, and again, using the notes there in the introduction, just for you, you have it there. If you have the notes, you have them on your phone or whatever you, you do. So you have these two individuals. Both come to faith after Jesus' work is done. After Jesus goes back with the Father, these guys come to faith. Um, James will have contact with Paul. James will have uh, interaction with Paul. But they have two such separate ministries and responsibilities. And James, as you I'm sure know, James will be one of the first martyrs of the church. He will be killed by Herod. Uh, so... The, the context for both of these men is somewhat similar, a little bit parallel, but they have different responsibilities. The value of both of these guys is they're both very early. They, wrote, they write the earliest books of the New Testament. James is the first, Paul's would be the second, and then Mark, Gospel, and then, just, then you just have bang, 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 a whole bunch of letters and, and books are written. So it's important for us as we study these two and as Fred's question, and when I answered it, we're only 16 years after Jesus went back to the Father. 16 years. That's not a very long time. And so what we see as we deal with both of these letters is we see what were the issues in the early church? What, what were they wrestling with? Because they have, you know, they have Jesus, but they have the law. And how, how are they putting all this stuff together? And that's the challenge. And that's why Paul, Paul will make the argument of Galatians. We embrace a free grace gospel. Jim, this is Paul? Yeah, uh, yes, please. They, uh, they kind of doubted Paul because he wasn't part of the original uh, apostles. Was it wasn't it? That was a lot of it. They questioned him whether he really that's had exactly, authority. That's exactly right. That is going to be the first two chapters of the book of Galatians. Paul does something that he doesn't do in any of others' epistles. He proves his apostolic authority. He has to prove that he is an apostle. And he has to validate that he has the right, if put it that way, the right to speak for Jesus. The, the right to say, this is what Christianity stands for. And uh, he, will, he will make that argument in the first two chapters. You're right, Woody. That the Judaizers and many, many others did not believe that Paul was an apostle because he obviously wasn't a part of the original 12 or even part of the 70. He, was, he, he doesn't come to faith until Jesus goes back to the Father. Jim, one more question, I guess. What, uh, the Holy Spirit now is present. Yeah, Pentecost had occurred order. Yep. And so what role um, do you see interwoven in this ministry and people coming to faith uh, as far as the Holy Spirit is there 
do you have uh, references well, here that might? Well, when we get to chapter five, uh, Paul is going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. That's, it is in chapter five where you have that wonderful passage on the fruit of the Spirit and all, all of those wonderful parts of his ministry. That I think the best place, I, I don't want to get bogged down in that if, I, if it's all right, but the best place to start thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant is John chapter 16, where Jesus, now, Jesus is talking about this is what's going to happen. When I go back to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will, and he starts talking about the thing. He will guide you in all things. He will teach you all that I've taught you. He will bring to, help you bring to remembrance the things that I've taught you. So the Holy Spirit is absolutely central in the new covenant. As a matter of fact, he actually is the sign of the new covenant, but it's the energizing power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Once May 24th, AD 33 occurs, that's the date of Pentecost. Once Pentecost occurs, the new order has begun officially. It had been predicted, it's been prophesied, prophesied by Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 prophesied by Ezekiel and Ezekiel 36. It's fulfilled on Pentecost, and that he's the sign of the new covenant, the new order has dawned. And so the Holy Spirit is the empowering center, the energizing force of the new covenant. And both James and G and Paul uh, will, will, will draw on that and illustrate that, especially Paul, how central the Holy Spirit is. And as Jesus said in that same chapter in, Mark, in, in John's gospel, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. With unbelievers, that's his major role. He convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That they have to understand what all three of those mean in the context. But that's the Holy Spirit. The whole, salvation is a, is a supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. And it's only the Holy Spirit in convicting people. They then respond and and put their faith, and then he regenerates them. Jesus' word, he's born again. But the Holy Spirit is the key to all this. So you could say that, that after Pentecost, anybody who accepted Christ as Savior would then be justified just like we are, and then indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and then start on the journey of sanctification. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's, Paul lays all that out for us in terms of understanding in this book and in the book of Romans. Many have argued that Galatians is actually a mini Romans. Galatians is a condensation, of, you know what I mean by that, condensing of Romans in six chapters. But uh, we'll get to that. All right, now we, we spent about 25 minutes introducing this. So are you all with me on track here? Now I'm gonna, for a bit now, I'm just gonna focus on Galatians. And as we get into chapter 3, I'm going to then go back and forth between Galatians and James. All right, um, let's get into the book. And if you're following your notes, you'll see on page 3, I have one of Swindoll's synthetic charts of the book. Uh, it's a great, it's a great synthetic chart because it summarizes the three parts. Chapter 1 and 2, Paul is going to defend his apostleship. Chapter 3 and 4 are the theological center. That's, that's doctrine, heavily theological. And then chapters four and five is the effects of justification in our life. What does a justified life look like? That's chapter five and six. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's, let's get the introduction done because this is an unusual introduction, or if you want to call it salutation or greeting. Uh, usually Paul's a pretty standard. This is unusual, but 
probably because it's the first one, and he's dealing with something very, very unique. Paul, an apostle. I want to come back to that word in a minute. Note, though, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, there is a great deal in verse 1 that we need to talk about. First of all, as uh, I forget one of you, oh, it's Woody who said that. The, the critics of Paul and the Judaizers were the major ones, but a lot of, even a lot of others, even some of the, the people down in Jerusalem, and James is head of that church, they have major questions about Paul. They really aren't. Wait a minute. He was persecuting the church, and they really struggled with that. And so for Paul to claim to be an apostle was extraordinary. Because that means he is adopting, or I should maybe put it this way, he is claiming the same title that Peter had, that, that John had, that, that Andrew had. You remember the original 12 apart? Remember that? So he's making that claim. So uh, the Greek word is apostolon. So what does that mean to be an apostle? It's one sent out with authority. One sent out with the authority of the sender. And he tells us who the sender is. What does he say? Not from men. I'm not an apostle. I'm starting to raise my voice here. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> not, not an apostle that was commissioned by human beings. And it did not come from men. It did not come through. In other words, this is really important. It's, it's not sourced in man. It's not through the agency of man. That's the difference between the prepositions from and through. It's not sourced in a human being. It's not through a human being. Instead, it's through dia, the source and agency of my apostolic position and authority is through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. And when you see that clause through, it's a phrase actually, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, that is, that, that little coordinating connection and, it, it's an equality, it's a statement of equality. The source and his agency comes from two equal beings. Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so this is grammatically, if you follow what I'm saying, grammatically, that's just one of the ways to express the equality of the two persons, in this case, two persons of the Trinity, Father and the Son. He is his source and his agency. Again, showing by agency, it comes through. It's sourced in Jesus and the Father and through Jesus and the Father. So that's really important because he's, it's, it's, it's absolutely central to the defense he's making. I am not an apostle because of other human beings. And it did not come through other human beings. It's sourced in and it comes through the Trinitarian God. And he mentions the Son and the Father here. And he adds that quite crucial relative clause there. The Father who raised him, bring to Jesus, who raised him from the dead. And that's just confirming again one of the central elements of our faith. And one of the central elements of the gospel is the resurrection. And as the resurrection 
validated the finished work of Jesus. The resurrection enables Jesus and the Father to then commission and, and, and send out apostles with their authority. So G, Paul is an apostle with the authority of God. So you could say this. When Paul writes an inspired letter, he's speaking for God. This is God's word. So it's a it's a it's a it, it, it's absolutely central to the argument he's going to make in this book. Right out of the shoot, the very first thing he establishes is apostolic authority. Because the Judaizers and all these other enemies are questioning that. And they have they have some pretty compelling arguments. Because this guy persecuted the church. This guy threw a lot of our friends in prison. This guy killed some of our friends. Now he's claiming to be somebody else. What happened to him? And that's what he's going to explain that will begin in verse uh, in verse 10, but we're not there yet. But that, that really kind of emphasizes the fact that you said he came unglued. I mean, he's, he's just adamant, that, uh, and he's very upset at what these people have done to what he already established. Absolutely. Yeah. And he just says, and all the brothers who are with me, uh, and, you know, Paul and Apostle, and all the brothers. And that would include Barnabas. That would include uh, some of the other leaders of the uh, Antiochian church, and uh, probably Silas, although we're not quite sure at this point, Paul, who's up there in, in the Antiochian church. Now, I want to remind you something else here. I don't, uh, there is a map a little later on in your, in your notes, but just to, to mention this, there were two great centers in the very early church. There was Jerusalem, the mother church. That's where Jesus was, you know, crucified. Well, that's where the church was born, Pentecost, uh, as you know, and Antioch. Because we learn uh, in the book of Acts that Antioch is where people were first called Christians, which literally means Christ followers. And so the Antiochian church, if I say Antiochian, you want to mean church at Antioch? The church at Antioch was by and large Gentile, whereas, of course, the Jerusalem church was almost 100% Jew, a few Gentiles, but for the most part. So that, that, that is already creating maybe the best word would be a little bit of tension because these are Gentiles up here and these are Jews down here. And so James, who's head of the Jerusalem church, is going to be very, very sensitive to this difference. And that's what's going to lead to the Great Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Because of this growing cleavage between these two. Because the Jewish Christians are a little bit suspicious of the Gentile Christians. Because the Gentile Christians have absolutely no connection to the law. Nothing. You follow me? other than what they study and read in the Old Testament, which would become an important part of their, of their study. But they have no connection to the law. They're pagans who come to know Christ. These are Jews who embrace a fulfilled law in Jesus. And that's a big difference. And that, that's what's going to cause the tension and potential division that's going to result in the Jerusalem Council in the decree of chapter 15 of the book of Acts, which... We won't even talk about that for quite a while. But I, I'm just trying to, when Paul is writing, he's writing from Antioch. And that, that's the Gentile, the largely Gentile. 
And the Jerusalem people down here are kind of sensitive to what's going on. That's creating some tension, and we'll see a little more about that. He's addressing his letter to the churches of Galatia. And if you're if you're interested in this, I'll just explain it. This is South Galatia. It's and it's the cities that are recorded for us in Acts 13. Because there was a North and there's a, early on it, it isn't even important. Early on, it was quite a dispute among some expositors. Or maybe Paul's writing to North Galatian churches. No, he's writing to South Galatian churches. Now, look look at what he says. This part of his greeting is typical in all his letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, it's that same clause, although this time the Father's first and Christ is second. Now, it, some of you have been around my classes for a while, so you've heard some of this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nonetheless uh, talk about it again. Paul is doing something. We have found thousands and thousands of letters from the Greco-Roman world in archaeology. I mean, they're all over the Mediterranean world, just thousands and thousands of letters. And if you're reading a letter that was written by a Greek a Greco-Roman person to another Greco-Roman person. Almost always they would start their letter, Grace. Grace said, it's Chris. Chris said, and then start the letter. Or we have found a lot of these. If you find uh, a Jewish person writing to another Jewish person in Jerusalem or, or in some of the other cities that made up uh, the area of Palestine at that time, they would write, Shalom. Shalom, Bill. Shalom, Fred. Shalom, Fred. I have a lot of friends in Israel, and they communicate to me. That's that's how they always say shalom, Jim. Get them on the phone, shalom, Jim. So what Paul, this is what you need. You're, you're going to search all over the archaeological material of the ancient world. You're not going to find anybody with Paul. He combines the two, a Greek greeting and a Jewish greeting, grace and peace. Why do you think he did that? Because the church is made up of Jew and Gentile. Jerusalem, Antioch. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile. And so he combines the two, the Greco-Roman greeting and the Jewish greeting, and combines them. In addition, in my view, I believe Paul is also making a theological statement. God always deals with the human race on the basis of grace. His common grace, his saving grace, his sustaining grace. He owes us nothing. He offers us everything. That's his grace. And the result of saving grace is peace with God. Shalom. Shalom. I just preached the message this past Sunday on the word peace in my church. And that, that's a precious, precious word to both the Jew and the Gentile. And so Paul is making not only a combining the Jew and Gentile People in his greeting, two groups, he's also making a theological statement. God deals with us in grace, and when we accept that, one of the consequences of that is peace, the peace of God. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful, life-changing, transformational aspect of our faith, to be at peace with God. Everything's settled between you and me and God, and therefore between you and me. That, that, that concept, that Greek word of, of for peace is irene. The Hebrew word is shalom, as you know. And so he's just establishing something that's quite central 
And we'll, he will say this in chapter 3, verse 28. Jew in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's total spiritual equality. Man, we're female, slave free, and all those different dichotomies of the ancient world. Okay, it's almost 25 after, and we only have three verses done. So let's go to verse 4. Now notice, Lord Jesus Christ, and now the, the relative pronoun, who. This is what's unusual about Paul's greeting. He does not usually go into this detail. Who gave himself for our sins. Now, this is important for what Paul is dealing with with the Judaizers. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And that phrase, who gave himself for, that preposition for, has the idea of substitute. So you have the idea of the substitutionary idea of Christ, who gave himself as our substitute for sin with this purpose, to deliver us. You could translate that literally, because it's ex eludutai. You could translate that literally to rescue us. This is the only time Paul uses that word in his 13 letters. That's translated deliver. It's the only time he uses it. It's an infinitive of purpose flowing out of why he died for our sins. Why did he do that? To rescue us. Now listen. If he is writing to defend his gospel, the free grace gospel, what is the underlying message he's sending? The law can't do this. The law does not rescue you from sin. That's not its purpose. You are not justified through the law. He's going to say that in chapter 3. And so right out of this, this is very unusual in his letter. He doesn't do this in his introduction in his letters. But he establishes once again the central difference between him and the Judaizers. I represent the authority, source, and agency of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us in our place substitution to rescue us, ex elata, to deliver us from the present evil age. Very unusual. Only time Paul uses it in his letters to rescue, to deliver. From what? The present evil age. It's really fascinating he chooses that language because he's reminding the people of Galatia something he had taught them. We have three enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan. Satan means adversary. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says of Satan, he is the god of this age. Colossians 1.13 speaks of his kingdom as the kingdom of darkness. So this present evil age, the word evil centers on the, the head of this evil kingdom, Satan. And that's one of the themes in Paul's writings. Jesus, substitutionary death on the cross, rescues us from our enemy. Satan and his kingdom. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 1.13, one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament, 
You put your faith in Jesus. He, 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 he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his dear son. Isn't that a great statement? And so I put in my notes right after the present evil age, Colossians 1.13. He delivers us from that false kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so this is a marvelous, marvelous summary of what Paul represents with his apostolic authority. And he's drawing that line in the sand between him and what he teaches with the authority of Jesus and these Judaizers who are saying you must keep parts of the law to be saved. And Paul is going to, in effect, say just a little bit, if that's true, that you could be saved by the law, then Jesus didn't really need to come. If you guys really believe what you're saying, then really Jesus didn't need to come. Of course, that's ludicrous. Notice how he concludes this. To rescue, I like the, I'd like to translate that rescue. To rescue us from this present evil age, this bondage to this false kingdom, according to the will of our God and Father. And that's the theme of the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross at Calvary, obeying the will of his Father. That's the gospel. And you know, Paul just cannot help himself. The only time in his epistles, in his greeting, he launches into a little doxology. Did you see that? I mean, you can't help himself. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen. <laughs> so, I mean, he's only two or three verses into his letter, and he's already issuing a doxology because he's hitting the gospel. It isn't the law that causes us to glorify God be our salvation. The rescue plan isn't through the law. The rescue plan is through Jesus. He delivers us from this evil age, this domain of darkness, this kingdom of darkness. Through his substitutionary sacrifice. You know, when you say Not the law. When you say something, you know, you just are overwhelmed by the knowledge that you are speaking that what a great God we have. Yeah. I mean he just can't help himself. I mean it, it, this is what his whole life he was he was transformed. When he understood that in Damascus, when he met Jesus, you know, you know what happened. He understands that everything he had believed was wrong. If I can go down a bunny trail for just a minute, a part of those 13 years from 35, 36 to 48, 49, I think those years, among many other things that are going, Paul is ministering, Paul's serving, but I think he's also developing the theology of the early church that you see in Galatians and you see in Romans. Because it, you, we've studied Romans, and we're going to study this. I mean, these are, this is brilliant, brilliant work, where he can take all of this and distill it into this argument that he's making. You can't just do that off the cuff. It reflects years of thinking and studying. Because Paul had a PhD from the University of Tarsus and a PhD from Gamaliel School of Rabbinic Teaching in Jerusalem. I made that up, but. <laughs> I mean, he was extremely well. He was absolutely brilliant. And I just, I, every time I study Paul's letter, I just, I shake my head in amazement at his utter brilliance. Under the supervision of the Spirit, of course, but still. 
He was a brilliant man that God used. When God chose him on the Damascus Road, God knew what he was doing. I didn't get any amen, amens from that, but that's all right. Okay. Doctor, yeah, please. So but the will of, of our God and Father actually began in Genesis 3.15 and codified in the Abrahamic covenant and culminated in Christ. That's exactly right. He's been working this plan since the fall of the human race. So I, 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 if you don't mind, I mean, we took a lot of time on this, just a, a few verses, but th these are rich verses in establishing the uniqueness of this epistle. Right out of the chute, he's making this distinction. All right, now let's, let's get into verses 6 through 10. I don't quite think we'll get through all this because there's a lot I want to say here. But now we learn why he's so upset. Why, why does he come unglued when he hears about these Judaizers? Look at his words in verse 6. I am, it's a great translation, I am astonished. I mean, that's a word of, almost, you can't believe it. You disbelief. It's incredulous. I'm astonished at what? That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now let's look at a couple of terms here and phrases in verse 6. Comment and sustain. And the little phrase, the yeah, I read from the ESV translation, so quickly deserting him. Why is Paul saying so quickly? Because the first missionary journey is in 48 into 49. He gets back to Antioch, hears what's happening with the Judaizers up in those cities, and fires off this letter. You're not talking about years. You're not talking about decades. You're talking about weeks. And these Judaizers, as they've been following Paul around, these Iconium, Pisidium, Antioch, Lystra, all those cities that are in Acts 13, and he said, how, how can you be doing this? You're deserting him. And it, it called you, that's Paul's favorite word for salvation, kaleo is the Greek word, called you. You're not just a cosmic accident. God called you. He gets into election and all that, which I don't want to deal with right now. He's just saying, but notice what he says, in the grace of Christ. You are a product of God's grace. How can you desert that? And he's establishing something. Because when he says you're turning to a different gospel, the word for different there in Greek is heteron. We get our word heterodox from that. And that word different means something of a totally different kind. They are not even close to being similar. This is a heteron gospel one of a totally different kind. It bears no similarity whatsoever to the gospel of grace. Because in Paul's, in Paul's theology, when you're talking about salvation, law and grace are mutually exclusive. Now, I'm not talking about the moral law of God. I'm talking about when you're talking about salvation, law and grace are mutually exclusive. So he says, 
how can you so quickly desert God's grace? The teaching and you accepted and you embraced it, the free grace gospel of Jesus. And you're in turning to. That's a really important word. That they translated that perfectly. Turning to. They haven't done it, but they're turning toward that. You might stop it in the tracks. Follow me? You're turning to a heteron, a different gospel. Not that there is another one. The Greek word there, another one, is alos. There's not, not that there's another one. There isn't another gospel. There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you, the Judaizers, and who distort the gospel of Christ. So he's laying his cards on the table. What the Judaizers are teaching is a heteron gospel, one of a totally different kind, because they're troubling. And then he uses that word, good translation. You could translate that, who are perverting the gospel or distorting the gospel. Now, I'll remind you, it's in the notes there, too, and I'll remind you what they were doing. These Judaizers are saying, there's faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. If you want to have a complete salvation, you have to circumcise your children. You have to keep the feast days. You have to observe the Sabbath, etc. That's the that's the complete salvation. What Paul is what Paul's preaching is an incomplete, deficient salvation. It's not going to get you where you want to be. And Paul says, "What? You are throwing you are throwing the grace of God in Christ Jesus out the door, and you're saying your salvation depended on you." You're saying that your salvation is dependent on you performing, on you meriting. In other words, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not saved. That's what the Judaizers were saying. If you don't circumcise your kids, you're not saved. Because the argument of the Judaizers is that complete salvation is in keeping the law or keeping part of the law. And Paul says, you can just see Paul. He's putting his, his hand like this in his head and saying, I can't believe these people are doing this. Because they are coming under the influence of these troubling ones who are perverting the gospel. But he's not done. Verse 8. But even if we, Paul, Barnabas, perhaps Silas and others, all those up at the Antiochian church, but if we and, excuse me, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one pre-preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word for accursed is anathema, anathema, anathema. Did you ever hear that word anathema? This is what Paul is saying. Let him be eternally condemned to hell. Does that lack clarity to you? Is that ambiguous to you? I mean, Paul is wrong a lot of sand here. I mean, it's 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 remarkable. He and I use the, the figure of speech of, of coming unglued. He is. There is no hold barred here. 
he has drawn that line in the sand. Those guys crossed that line. And because they crossed that line, they're trying to get pull you across that line. Let them be eternally condemned to hell. Wow. And so we don't miss the point, he says. I'll say it again, verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When Paul says something twice in the same verse, you want to pay attention to it. You know, when I was studying this on Monday, Monday's my study day, and I was going over this, and I read that. Be preached to you even an angel from heaven should preach to you. You know what I thought of? Moroni. You know who he is? The angel that met Joseph Smith in outside Syracuse, New York. And said, I have another gospel for you. And they're hidden outside the town in golden plates, in reformed hieroglyphics. I'm going to give you special glasses and alert you to special glasses, which will enable you to read that. And then I want you to compile it, and it will eventually become another gospel of Jesus Christ. What's its title? The Book of Mormon. Honestly, man, and I don't, I don't mean to dump on, but it just made me think because what Paul is saying in verse eight precisely applies to the history of Joseph Smith and the founding of that faith. It's another gospel. If you read the gospel, the New Testament, that is very, very good. It, it's very helpful, but you must also read the other gospel of Jesus Christ that deals with the. Well, we'll get into all that, but and you just you just you, so you you have two volumes, and if you ever write to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints in Salt Lake City, Utah, and ask for a copy of their holy books, they will send you two, both published by their publishing house. The New Testament, and that's in King James Version, by the way. And the Book of Mormon is in King James Version, which is really fascinating because if this was written in Reformed hieroglyphics, centuries and centuries before Jesus, all of the quotations from the Bible in the Book of Mormon are in the King James Version, which was written in 1611, which is really interesting. I mean, so how they can explain that is one of the interesting challenges of that, of that, uh, that movement. So I won't say any more about it. I shouldn't have even gone down that bunny trail. But it's just, I, was, I, just it's, I thought of that because that's exactly what happened in 1820, 1823, I think it was, because 1844, Joseph Smith is, is, is killed. By the way, did you know in 1844 he ran for president of the United States? He was in Nebula, Illinois. He founded this new movement and he ran for president. And you've got thousands and thousands of votes. But he wasn't elected. You, you probably already know that. <laughs> All right. Now, in these first um, these first nine verses, it's it's rich. There's rich doctrine and rich theology. But you get the point. Now of the letter, Paul's back is arched. He he's 
He's upset about what he hears about these churches that he planted up there in South Galatia. And so this letter is getting at the heart of the problem. You guys are turning toward another gospel. Stop it. So this is what he does. I'm going to lay this out. We'll just get started because I'm almost out of time here. But what he's going to lay out here is in, in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 2, Paul feels the necessity to prove something. He wants to give the evidence for the theme in verse 1. I am an apostle with apostolic authority. I did not get this either sourced in or by the agency of other human beings. It's sourced in and by the agency of God, the Trinitarian God, the Father and the Son. He has to prove that. And so verse 10, through the end of chapter 2, he lays out a series of proofs for this. And that's if you follow the notes, if you're interested in doing that, that's how I've outlined. He's going to give the thesis in verse 10, 11, and 12. He's going to establish his thesis. And he's going to give evidence for his thesis. Okay, what's his thesis? For I am now seeking, excuse me, for I am now seeking the approval, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I treating, trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he asked rhetorically, based on what he's just said, he's introducing. And what I'm doing, and what I'm doing here in Antioch, as I was sent out as a missionary from the Antiochian church, as I spent time with you guys and planted all these churches in calculation, am I seeking the approval of man or God? This must mean something. These Judaizers were saying, Paul's just trying to tickle your ears. Make it easy. Make it sounding real easy. He's trying to please you guys. He's trying to please people. His gospel is cheap grace. Paul says, if I'm trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot please people, be a man pleaser, and be a servant of Christ. They're mutually exclusive. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. These guys are saying I'm a man pleaser. I'm preaching something cheap. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's this thesis. The gospel that Paul preached. He says, I'm an apostle, sourced in and through the agency of Jesus and God the Father. The corollary to that is the gospel I preached did not come from a human being. It's not sourced in a human being. It comes through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Is he referring to his Damascus Road experience? Is he referring to the time we'll read about that coming up next week? When he goes down into Arabia for a period of time, when he's up until we, it's, it's unclear, but he's saying something. This is his thesis. 
The gospel I preach does not come from man. It's silly to try to be being man pleaser. It's sourced in Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what he's going to do, and we'll start this next week with verse 13. He's going to start laying out proof after proof after proof after proof to establish I am an apostle with apostolic authority preaching the gospel that's sourced in Jesus. Okay? So when we're done with the first two chapters, your thought paper will be prove that Paul is an apostle with apostolic authority. And I know you'll be able to do that. Okay, you with me? The great little yes, great little book. All right. All right. I'm going to pray then. If the silence means total understanding of everything we've been talking about, and that is just so encouraging to your teacher. Really excited. Father, thank you for Paul. Oh my, I, he's one of the great heroes of the faith. His letters are so clear. His letters are so insightful, so helpful. In, in enabling us to once again be reminded that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's about his substitutionary work on Calvary's cross, his resurrection, and the proclamation of that. That's the good news. And it is not made up by men. It's not sourced in men. It comes from you. You are the one who accomplished it, and through your Holy Spirit, you inspired others to write about it over and over and over and over again. Lord, we stand on the shoulders of these great saints of the church who, under tremendous persecution, great, great suffering, all talks about that in Second Corinthians, they championed the gospel in the first century, and they turned the Roman Empire upside down. And this, this individual, Paul, most, one of the most extraordinary individuals in Scripture, such a transformation from someone who killed and threw in jail, Christian after Christian after Christian, now champions that same gospel. What a great evidence of your transforming grace in a person's life. We thank you for choosing Paul. Thank you for his ministry to us 2,000 years later. He still is ministering because he was writing under your authority and sourced and through your agency, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that same vein, Lord, we want to represent you to this world too. We have been saved out of darkness from this. We've been rescued from this present evil age. We are citizens of your kingdom, champions of your grace. May we represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. Yeah. See you next week.